everyone dreams of living an uncommon life. And the best asset you have to achieve your dreams is you. Welcome to the Uncommon Wealth Podcast. We're going to introduce you to people who are living uncommonly. We're also going to give you some tools and strategies for building wealth and for pursuing an uncommon path that is uniquely right for you. Hello and welcome everybody to the Uncommon Wealth Podcast where I'm your host, Philip Ramsey. And I'm Aaron Kramer. we got a special one today. i got my family here. That wow. have, yes, that's great. <laughs> I'm excited. It's unique. I think it's, a lot of you guys that are own a business are going to take a lot away from this. So I know I'm excited about it because they're the big dogs in my bit, my family, and they have a lot of wisdom to give. So I'm super excited. Let's get into it. Yeah. So we got Robert Kramer and Dan Kramer today. Um, and the thing that I really want to unpack is this is actually their second generation of taking it over. So we'll start there. How did you guys get to your point? Tell us about Kramer and Associates. Where did it come from? And like, we'll just start there. Like, where did it come from? Give us the history so our okay. listeners understand. Well, I'll take a shot first. Dan will fill in the blanks. Uh, so our dads were brothers, and they live in southern Missouri. Uh, Dad comes up to Iowa to go to Buena Vista College, transfers to Iowa State. At Iowa State, you know, the uh, Iowa DOT is in Ames along with Iowa State. So he started working for the DOT in the summer, and a contractor hired him. He was like an ag engineering major, but started working for a contractor in the summer, and all of a sudden he becomes a partner and moves up, and now he's building bridges and culverts. So about that time, his as his brothers uh, graduated uh, out of high school, and, and one went to uh, Dan's dad went to college. They started coming up and joining them, so then it became Kramer Brothers. Did I miss anything there, Dan? No, that's mostly it. And what would you? What did you miss mostly? <laughs> uh, I'm currently working on a historical account for our wow for our yearly uh, fascinating meeting, and uh, yeah, there's a lot of details, but but no, that's the bulk of it. They moved up there to a bunch of poor, broke farm kids, and took the opportunity of the interstate system being constructed in the late '50s, early '60s, wow. and really worked. It's amazing to think they started with absolutely nothing. Isn't I mean, that fascinating? A, a claw to me? hammer right. and borrow enough money to buy a wheelbarrow and knowledge uh, in your head. Let's see how yeah. that goes. Yeah, and just work ethic. Just yeah, the ability to use your hands to build things right. and get paid for it. Okay, so you guys were just a wee little lad, or not even a part of the picture yet. You guys weren't born yet. Not even a glimmer in their eye. Okay. Yeah. All right. So they go to Iowa State, and then where did your father go to? Uh, Missouri. Missouri. Okay. Played football at University of Missouri. Oh, okay. Play a little football. I like He's kind that. of a little guy. They're bigger now. What position? You know, I don't know. At college, he was kind of an all-star running back in high school. Okay. But I think he was more linebacker in college. Uh, or maybe defensive back. Yeah, defensive uh, kind back. Kind of like a corner. He was okay. yes, fairly short. Uh, he said that his coach told him, it's not how big you are, it's how tightly you're wound. So <laughs> it worked out well. I kind of described him. He always, he always told me, because he's my grandpa, he said he had to learn everything to get time on the field. So he played all the positions, is my understanding. Yeah. But you guys know better than me. <laughs> well, I wasn't there. But it wasn't as professional a sport as it is the today. The libero of football. Yeah. Ben. Yeah. yeah cool. You played both sides. You know, you didn't have 100 people. and. But he got asked to go pro. Really? I didn't hear that story. <laughs> I heard that story. Like, he got asked to go pro, but like uh, you were, I mean, you'd make a way better living. <laughs> not out, doing that. Not doing that. <laughs> yeah. So he t- he turned that down. 
Okay. Yeah, that was before Pro was not by today's standards. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. there you go. Right. So oh. then the late seventies, uh, they did another transition where they uh, became non-union. They started Kramer and Associates. They went from Kramer Brothers to Kramer Associates, which is non-union, and also it's an ESOP, Employee Stock Ownership Plan. That's huge. We're so going to get is. into that. Yeah. So that uh, is a good laid a good groundwork for us. Okay. So at that point in the seventies, now you're born, right? Yes. And Switching from union to employee-owned is a huge deal. Do you remember any of that? Or like, no. do you remember the history of why and how that went down? And I don't know the history. Yeah, I don't know all the history. I was high school then. Um, I actually worked for Kramer Brothers some when I first started and joined the laborers' union. So for about five, six years, both companies operated as a double-breasted company. Uh. It was a fad then. Everybody did that. I don't know all the reasons why. Um, but the um, unions in the highway industry did kind of fall apart in the 80s. The market really got tough. Mm. And most highway builders moved away from union help and started doing something else. So there were places, in the, and still are, places in the country where it is extremely difficult to work without being union. Correct. You'll get picketed, and you'll, your suppliers won't bring you concrete and all this kind of stuff. The union, uh, back in the day, the unions like uh, blew up a crane or set a crane on fire or something. It was almost like the mafia. Yeah. Like, without saying that out <laughs> yeah. loud, I'd probably get hit for that. So, uh, <laughs> Well, I had a union guy tell me just a few years ago when we didn't want to move forward with them, they said, well, man, we might have to just go back to being nasty. So, <laughs> Okay. So, Good to know. Oh, um, yeah. <laughs> so it was good to, for them to break away. But the other big piece of it is just the control. I mean, Dan can maybe speak to this of just who's in charge of, on the job site. You know, is a laborer going to look at you and say, I can't pick up that two by four. It, that's a carpenter's job, you know, stuff like that. Yeah, I agree. And that was part of the, uh, um, yeah, I don't want to go off on a union bashing thing. <laughs> I know a lot of union people, they're all good they're people, people. But right. um, so for our work in our industry, um, the unions were gaining a little bit too much control over the trades and who did what. And it, it did seem like a, it wasn't just us, the entire road building industry kind of moved away from union help at that time period. Right. But, okay. So talk to me about employee owned and how many employees did you have at the time or did Kramer and yeah. Associates have? I don't know how many at that time. I would guess 70 or 80 at the time. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. And that's also, you can't be a union and an ESOP. Uh, right. So you got to, uh, Pick your lane. Yes. And so it really, my dad always said, if if you look at the ESOP as a giveaway, you'll be very happy with it. If you look at it as just a tax break, trying to get around paying taxes, you'll get frustrated because every dollar you put into that ESOP belongs to somebody else. So That's you're right. giving it to the employees. Uh, and so we give a percentage of the employee's income, can be anywhere from zero to 15% uh, at the end of the year. We calculate their income, take, let's say, 5% of it and put it into the pot in their name, and that pot buys Kramer Associates stock, so they are invested in the company. Mm-hmm. Right. It is a really change in mindset because uh, no longer is it kind of management against employees. Now you're treating employees. We're all in the same boat. Yeah, you're treating employees like owners, which right. they are, and then they start acting like owners. and then all huge. Sudden, yeah, <laughs> especially in our work. Our work is so labor-intensive. It's all about how 
efficient can we be of getting the job done? If we can get it done more quickly and uh, with less labor than our competitor, then we'll be ex- very successful. If we can't, then it'll, we'll be toast. <laughs> be hard. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. Okay. So I was part of a company, ITA Group, in West Des Moines, and they were at ESOP. Um, as well. I was just out of college, so I didn't really understand it. And you had to be there for over five years to even get us part of that. But what I do remember is the annual meetings and the CEO would get up and kind of talk and then he would give the ESOP price. And I remember people weeping that we've been there for a while. Like it's a huge benefit. Um, And that always stuck in my head of like this employee owned thing. One, employees take more responsibility, but then they get to be unified in the reward of seeing that number go up exponentially and they all just i mean it was just it was impactful to me so i think that was the right decision that both your your dads made for you mm-hmm. okay and so tell me and sorry aaron i'm kiboing no, this interview but uh tell me how that transition went from when your parent your dads were like all right here's how we're going to transition this thing because that is not an easy decision and it's not normally a smooth transition only because we all have thought like i'll work forever <laughs> In my mind, maybe that's just what I've seen. So yeah, well, that and the OGs are the OGs, and they they're they they built something yeah. for a reason. Yeah, yeah. It, well, I wouldn't use the word smooth, probably, <laughs> and I'm not sure it was their idea. Um, it was Robert's dad, Dell. It was his idea to transition, I believe. But there was two other brothers that owned this thing. I wouldn't say it was unanimous. I think some thought, well, when I'm gone, it's going to fold up because I'm doing all the work, right? Yeah. So there was some of that old school mentality in there that had to be dealt with. But um, I think Robert's dad, Dell, did try to start the transition really early, kind of almost in the early 90s. He set up a management team with us on it to manage the day-to-day operations. How old was he at that point? So, you know, I... uh I'm the youngest of six kids, so I graduated Iowa State at 1990. He graduated in 1950, so he's 40 years older than I am. So he was 62 wow. when I graduated college, so he's already thinking kind of retirement, so in 90. So that's why he started planning pretty good, and, okay. and then by 2000, we finally did it. Okay. Good. Yeah, I had 99, but it might have been 2000. Um, we actually, went through, we actually uh, retained some counsel, and I... Uh, a firm to help us with the formal transition because we were getting stalled. A um, bunch of family in the room with yellow notepads. We need to do this, and the brothers start arguing oh, exactly. back and forth. Oh, we ain't gonna do that. You told me 30 years ago we were gonna do this, you know. Some of that started happening. So we actually went out kind of on our own uh, without the first generation and um, retained some help. Um, and, you know, you think you go out and hire an experts. It's not so much that they're experts. We needed a facilitator. Absolutely. I was going to say We that. needed somebody. <laughs> expert. You just need somebody. Yeah. You know, they didn't know anything about what we did. Right. They didn't know anything about our business. You know it. But they knew they needed to lock us in a room and not let us out until we fought through this out. thing. Yeah. Facilitate it. Yeah. And it, and it worked. It, it, it wasn't cheap. It seemed like it was too much money. But in hindsight, oh, it would have been a shame if we wouldn't have got it done. Um, point, yeah. So they they thought, yeah, this expert's going to come down from on high and tell them what to do with their company. So they started to panic, and more plans started getting cranked out. But they, they really couldn't agree. My dad and Dan's dad uh, uh, 
his dad was like vice president. He really felt like my dad had been loafing the last several years. So he wanted to become president and loaf for a few years before retirement. Uh, my dad was nervous about that, didn't want that to happen. So they couldn't get to agreement. So all they did is put the older generation in one room, the younger generation in another room. Say, what, Fascinating. What do you need? What do you need? And within 24 hours, yeah, we had a deal. Gosh, isn't that really interesting? Like you just go back to like, no, but what do you want? And then let's facilitate that. Because if you just think about the mountain you have to climb, it's overwhelming. Mm-hmm. But if you think about well, what do you want, it helps kind of siphon out the things. Oh, that's all you want? Well, like they'll totally give that to you. <laughs> happy to do that. Well, I don't know if we were happy, but <laughs> but it was worth it. Yeah. What's yeah. your father's name? George. Yeah. Okay, George. Yeah. Okay. Just wanted to know. All right. So tell us more. So so after that, now has kind of been ironed out. You've hired the facilitators to help kind of work that out. Tell us about the next phase. And when did you guys start thinking of like, hey, listen, we could do this in a different way? Because there's always like, we have our own history. And that history, I think, gives us our own unique perspective. Well, yeah, hold on, though, Philip. Like, we got, uh, how did implementing the plan go? So I want to know, like, you did the, every plan's a good plan until, you know, you get hit in the face. <laughs> so how'd that go? Yeah, you know, it was interesting. It was, uh, it went, could not have gone better in the sense that we laid out, my dad would retire right away. George would retire two, off the board two years later. He actually kind of stopped doing day-to-day operations, but, but two years later he stepped off the board. And then another two years after that, or maybe four, uh, their youngest brother, Don, went off. So we kind of, you know, as soon as you have a date, you can kind of live with whatever date when you kind of know. It's just when you're working and you think, are these guys ever going to go? <laughs> That's when uh, that gets hard for yeah. everybody. Yeah. So having a date set was uh, made it easy on everybody. But the biggest part was we the company really started to prosper during those years. And so as shareholders, they were extremely happy. We're an S Corp, you know, so uh, so they're getting a good dividend off of their shares. Stepping back to that ESOP for a second, the ESOP owned about 38, 40% of the company. So 40% of the profit was going to the ESOP. You know, so that's why they were, the ESOP participants, the employees, mm-hmm. were very happy with what they were seeing. But the brothers were very happy too. What, what was going on in the 2000s, 2000 to 2006, 7, was the reconstruction of I-235 here in Des Moines. So 77 structures were either, you know, bridges were either widened or replaced uh, during that time. And there really were only about three contractors who would bid that because it's just, it was tough, a lot of night work, hard traffic. Big jobs. Yeah, and they, and they got bigger and bigger. So we ended up doing about a third of that work. And we bought more equipment. We hired more superintendents. Um, so it was a good a good time of growth for the company. So it was, it was, timing was great. Perfect timing. So at the time of like the transition, how big was Kramer's Associates? Like compared to like other bridge building companies in the Midwest? Oh, you know, similar. Um, I'm just thinking of the ones that worked on 235. There was one that was more of a nationwide company. They have operations down south. But the rest of us were probably similar, United and Herberger. I mean, yeah. all kind of local family businesses. Okay. Um, I don't know how many employees, between 70 and 100 maybe. But Okay. Yeah. So, like, I mean, I, I know, again, my dad wasn't involved too much. So, like, like, I always thought you guys were, like, close to, like, top, like, for just the Midwest, not your international or national companies, but like close to being like second largest or so here in Iowa, you know, probably before two thousand, we were maybe just doing, you know, twenty, twenty five million a year or something, and we're doing mostly repair work. So we do you know, 
build new bridges and we repair bridges kind of all around the state and a little bit of surrounding states. Well, then during that time, when you start doing more true replacement of bridges, you're buying a lot more materials and you need bigger equipment and all this. So now all of a sudden we're growing up to 50 million a year, you know, and and then, um, and stayed that size for quite a while. And then here in recent years, they've been doing these big mega projects that are $100 million jobs and stuff. So our, so our volume looks a lot bigger, even though the company isn't that much bigger. But Okay. Right. Okay, so you have six siblings. Five. five siblings. You have five, yeah. and you're the sixth. How many siblings do you have? Three. Three. So how does that work exactly in that transition? Because I feel like that's like something <laughs> that can go haywire fairly quickly. <laughs> Yeah, it can. You know, Robert's the youngest of his family, so his siblings had already all moved on and started other careers. Okay. Never worked for the company. Gotcha. Um, I've got two older sisters that never had any interest. Okay. And then Aaron's dad, my little brother, he worked for the company for a while and had to retire for health reasons. So the siblings never really got. Good. It was all cut and dried. And part of the reason the transition worked so well, I think, once we were already – Functionally, we were already transitioned. Yeah. <laughs> By setting up the management team in the early '90s, um, the work had or- the work leadership had already shifted. Mm-hmm. It was really a matter of formalizing it yeah. and putting yeah. an end date to the first generation. <laughs> uh, that it, that was ninety percent of it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. So that's why it worked so well because functionally, we were already there. Right. How is like for each of you like the relationship with your dads? Like, because I mean, this is their their baby that they grew and built like personally, like when you talk to them and you hung out with them, you know, and they're out of it, how'd that all go for you guys? Like, was it like one of those, was it sour or not? Not sour, sour is not a word, but just like, Hey, I don't need your opinion anymore. <laughs> kind of thing. <laughs> you know, they, we, I felt like we were very fortunate that my dad was kind of forward thinking and wanting to transition. Absolutely. And especially in our construction industry, you see a lot of guys hanging on to oh, their they hold 90 on to like a tight yeah, white yeah, grip until they die. Yep. Uh, so he really wanted to uh, get it kind of moved to this next generation and uh, navigating his brothers is probably the the part that um, you know was the tougher part. It what also became very fortunate was that my dad uh, had we not transitioned he passed away in 2002 so just two years after that really got implemented so uh and didn't see that coming at all he had you know um so it uh was fortunate that we had he had done that planning yeah absolutely okay so when did it start taking on a life of its own the one that now you had a vision of and was that hard transition because like your parent your dad's ran it a certain way, and then you were like, okay, now, but we need to keep moving the ball forward and expanding and growing, and we see opportunities, obviously, as you've talked about. Um, how did you end up being unified on that vision, I guess? And obviously, it's different because you had to grow it, so let's talk to you. You know, I think Robert might see it differently, but um, I'm not sure we had to create a new vision. They had such a strong, we had such a diving board to leap off of, um, such a strong roots in a family business. Um, When I think of the growth they had from starting with nothing, you know, through the 50s and 60s to building it up to where we got, all we had to do is just keep that ball rolling, man, and just keep pushing and just keep working like we'd learned to work, Mm -hmm. and it would fall into place. And it really did. I don't know that we had to create a new vision. We just had to not lose the culture that we had already. 
and keep it moving. What a blessing. Yeah, and I think uh, it worked well. So the way we split the tasks was, you know, I was more in the office doing estimating, engineering, uh, you know, kind of the safety and accounting stuff. Dan was doing all the work. So so he, uh, but the two of us, I think, were fairly like-minded in going after work. We were both fairly aggressive, uh, you know, didn't, you know, didn't shy away from the tougher jobs and that kind of thing, but uh, and so that helped. And I, and I, I tried to defer to Dan a lot on the field part, and even on bidding what to bid because I wanted him to feel. Uh, I wanted the field guys to have some ownership too of what we're bidding. Absolutely, right. Without that, it doesn't. Seems like from it's just a different leadership style than like, hey, what are you seeing? In the trenches, I think that is a strength of our company is leadership in the field. Yeah, I think um, companies tend to get too top heavy. Uh, they're in the office making decisions; they're bad decisions. Right. I, I think our setup really puts leadership in the field with boots on, making the calls, and you just don't feel like you're working some for some unknown face somewhere that you see once a year. Yeah, that's huge. How do you create that environment? Because I feel like a lot of companies want that, they don't get it. <laughs> you don't sleep much. Ah. I mean, you got to be out. You got to do the work. Yeah, it's just you know, it's just not a magic bullet. It's just hard work and yeah. sweat, and it's it's being out there involved. Yeah, and yeah. asking those yeah. when the decisions are made. Hey, what are you seeing? Fascinating. I know it's funny because I was talking to my brother. I mean, you guys can include on this because you guys know a lot more. But you know, like. He, I don't know, like he calls you Dan a lot for questions and how to do things, especially as he stepped up. And but like you guys didn't always have cell phones to ask questions, and you're working on a bridge, so um, yeah, or like GPS is to find where you're gonna go. Um, you gotta read the map, you know. So like, how how's that transition leading? Like how you guys got brought up asking questions, and now the new leadership. I mean, you guys are just a phone call away. Tell a little bit about what it was like at night having to go to yeah. find a payphone or something to call. <laughs> it's different. It, and I have this discussion quite a bit. And um, I, I think probably the largest technological change in my lifetime is the cell phone. Um, I mean, we're out on the road. You know, we travel. You're out living in motels and working out in rural areas. It used to be you left Sunday night. That's the last time you talked to anybody. You're out on your own, man. Because... I mean, you can drive to a payphone 10, 15 miles away, but the person you're trying to get a hold of might not be there. He doesn't have a phone in his pocket. Right, right. You know, so you spent your evenings on the phone calling people at home. That is fascinating. If they're out on the road, you say, well, where are they? Do you know what hotel they stay in when they're there? I'll call that hotel. Do you have a Don Kramer registered there? What rooms? (laughs) I mean, it sounds so weird now. Yeah. But, had but it was such an integral, integral part of your life and daily planning back then. But you did grow a fierce and a strong independence and a realization that uh, it was on you. You weren't going to get any help. Wow. Because you may not get any help. You, you're right. You know, you're, you're going to have to figure it out. Um, that's the only I'm – all, I'm all for technology. It's wonderful. The only downside is – You've lost that. It's on me. I need to figure this out. The dependence attitude. Yeah, right. Yeah, right. And it's something that's lost. That's probably uh, there's nothing we can do about it. Right. And um, if you're a listener right now and you're like, I don't know, leave your phone at home and go to the grocery store. How you like me now? Like that's yeah. a perfect example. Like, ah, uh, what do we do here? Just to even have that in your pocket to have an option to be able. To, if I needed it, I can call. 
yes. dependence on it. Yeah, but it's it's wonderful. I mean, I'm I don't get two feet away from mine. And what it's done is it, it allowed us to add superintendents. Uh, and by the way, let's step back and, and talk a little bit about the model of our company. It's a little bit different than our competition. So uh, my dad and George and those guys decided to, they agreed, maybe some of them reluctantly, to take our two best superintendents and take them out of the field, well, not out of the field, take them away from being a superintendent, made them a general superintendent, and put like three or four or five, six superintendents under them. And so really it was a way to multiply. So that general superintendent is now running six crews. Um, what it appeared like at first was they thought they were taking them out of the field, you know, and these super generals might just sit in the office and yeah. goof up. But no, they're, uh, they are working superintendents still. So then now we have like four uh, general superintendents overseeing like 19, 20 crews. Wow. But that's what really allowed us to grow. And you could you could take a younger guy who didn't have as much experience because now you got this general looking over his shoulder. Well, probably without the cell phone, you know, you've been pretty risky to do that with some of those guys. That's a good point. Okay, let's talk about your faith and how it's gotten you to where you're at today and, like, where does it fit in your company? Like, I feel like that's a question I love to ask, especially for uncommon people. There is a component of this underlying, weaving faith component. So there's your platform. Let's rock. (laughs) Well, you know, I've given this some thought and and, and spoke about it a few times. Uh, My dad was a good example, but he wasn't someone who – would just spew Jesus, you know, or Jesus talk or Christian talk. Uh, in fact, I gave Aaron the example the other day. Uh, when we were at our church, we were picking a architect for building uh, the next church. And these different ones came in. And this guy came in wearing a Jesus tie. He had uh, a Jesus on it. Don't do and he, it. And he had the pin. Come with on the, now. And he said, you really need to hire me because I'm a brother, you know. Well, I think step number one is just be really good at what you do and be a really good architect. Preach it. Yeah. Robert. So we picked this other company who seemed more professional and had more civic looking, you know, uh, contemporary buildings. We picked them. Well, then actually, once we got to work with them, we found out he's a solid Christian that we were working right, with. Right. You know, so he was a good architect who was also a Christian as opposed to a, you know, Christian architect. So that's what we try to do. I think step one is just be really good at what you do. And I also had a really good example. Example in dad that he was just a good example of a Christian with integrity, you know, the way he dealt with people, treating people fairly, treating people the way he wanted to be treated. Right. So just some good biblical values that, that came across. Then I think once he started to earn that reputation, then people started to figure out that he was a Christian and sometimes would come to him, you know, with uh, with their questions or concerns or in their hard times because right. they knew he had a, an anchor. Yeah. That's good, Robert. Dan? Yeah, similar. I mean, um, Dell Robert's dad, he was all of our mentors. Um, he always ran the company. But all of them, you know, they all came from a good, rooted, solid biblical upbringing and background. And I think that echoed through everything they did. Um, yeah, it's, it's not out front every day. It's not on any of our uh, letterhead or anything. But having an eternal perspective, I think, a good spiritual perspective allows you to have a sense of humility in leadership. Mm-hmm. And um, I think it helps have a more servant's heart and a more servant leadership type of attitude that echoes through the company. And I, I think it's um, it's healthy Absolutely. for our company. I think, it, I think it's healthy for all Any companies. Company. <laughs> uh, but it's certainly been healthy for our company. I, I, th- I think you can see it, I think. And we, I hear back from some of, the, some of the guys that they notice it. Absolutely. 
Right. I think it's interesting because, like, I think if Jesus were here today, there would be many people, I love that guy. Like, I just want to be around him. And he wouldn't be like, hey, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian. Like, no, I'm going to get in the depths and the trenches with you, and I'm going to serve you, and I'm going to yeah. serve you well. And when you think about this, I read a book one time, it was a leadership book, and he said, hey, the fights don't usually break out if somebody, like, demeans an individual. It's when they demean their mother. Now it's on. Does that make sense? Because mm-hmm. she's served this person her whole life, and now mm-hmm. it's like, don't you ever. So there's something about serving and emulating what Jesus did and how he acted, which is so attractive to the majority of people. And so I love that when I'm also a company that, or a guy that doesn't want to just put like a cross on the wall. No, I want my, I want my actions and I want the team around you that serves you so well that you're like, there's something different. There's something uncommon here. Well, that's the reason, one of the reasons why we named it Uncommon Wealth, because mm-hmm. we're common people. We serve an uncommon God. Yeah. And so... It's fascinating, too, because one of my friends uh, started a church in uh, Michigan, eastern Michigan, and his church is called Commons Church. And he was like, it's interesting. I have a church called Commons Church. You have a company called Uncommon Wealth. He's like, but we're all common people. And I'm like, that's great for you because you're in the faith, mm-hmm. so it's common people. But we're in the secular world, and we need to be uncommon because mm-hmm. that's what they need. Mm-hmm. And you're in a, a, the, the faith mm-hmm. world, and you need to be common people. We are common people serving uncommon God. And I hope that like, kind of works through us to be able to serve our clients in such a way. So it sounds like you do that not only from your client's perspective, but from your employee's perspective, which I think is powerful. So, Yeah, you know, it's interesting. In our world, every job we get, we have to be the low bidder. Right, because it's public money. It's uh, we're working for the DOT or the county or city, so therefore we don't have to do marketing or trying to win customers. You know, we just have to be low. <laughs> However, our customers still—it's very important how we treat the DOT, those owners, Amen. Yeah. and build that reputation um, of, of being honest and trustworthy. And also, then a big piece is how we treat our employees because we've got it. Uh, we can't be successful without the employees, and they uh, have to kind of buy into this culture. And I think as we've thought about culture, some of those values that came from our dads are that profit sharing mentality, mm-hmm. uh, you know, just being uh, honest and trustworthy, our image with the DOT, and how, uh, how we relate to our subcontractors and you know other contractors as well as the uh, owners and our employees. So one thing I want to make sure the listeners or we highlight for them is that you guys have built a really big business and it's great. You guys are super successful like at like implementing everything in the business world. But what you find so often in the business world is super successful business owners they need to go their home life and it is a hot mess. Mm. Now <laughs> I can stand here today and like tell all of our listeners stand by like that's not the case for you guys. You guys have like built great homes and with your families and um but like talk about that and then talk about like making that happen because that's hard like if our listeners remember like you guys grew up no cell phones on the road can't get help from like your like superiors but that's also means not calling your wife telling your kids good night yeah. all that stuff yeah grace it's um, <laughs> a great word. Yeah, I'm not going to say did everything right or did this or did that. Um, probably uh, we're both just blessed and fortunate to have the families we have. Um, some Sometimes you just get a raw deal, you know. But um, 
Yeah, I, I, I probably leaned a little bit workaholic, probably worked too much, gone too much, but uh, just really fortunate to have the spouse I have to be supportive of that and uh, never uh, downcast me for being gone too much, always appreciative of my efforts. And that translated into our kids then. I mean, they're very grateful for all the opportunities they've had. And mm-hmm. it, um, yeah, I'm not going to write a book on marriage or what to do right because I doubt <laughs> I did any of it right. Come but, on, Dan. <laughs> but I'm very fortunate to have been blessed the way I have with the family I have. And it's, uh, yeah, I think we're, pr- we're pretty solid. And one thing I've been impressed with Dan is that because he spent a lot more time on the road than I did. But when he was home, he was home. Mm. So he didn't have, like, you know, only be home Saturday and Sunday and then go off golfing for three hours or something. Mm. I mean, he was mm-hmm. home with his girls, and so they still had a very close relationship. Yeah, because I will can, I'll kind of echo what you said. There's a lot of people who are very successful, and uh, they just don't have the wife that they first started with. And so there is a lot, and Aaron knows this, sometimes like when I just first meet somebody, like, how long are you married? There's a lot that you can deduce from that, <laughs> whether or not they want to hear it or not. But I think there is something about your faith and your character that's like, no, I still have the same person next to me that I did. That says a lot about your yeah. spouses. It says a lot about you, too, as well. And so, okay. Robert, tell, you, tell me yours. So, we, so we've been married 36 years. So I got married at the ripe old age of 20, you know. But uh, <laughs> That's amazing. But, you know, and I would say that our faith is the very key component. I mean, there have been a lot of hard times. There are a lot of tough times where we were, you know, stressing each other out. But having that common faith in Christ and a uh, kind of the rules, you know, the rules to fall back on and say, no, oh, yeah. no, no, this is what you know the Bible says, or this is what oh. Jesus said, you got to do this, was a common denominator that just held us together. And sometimes, Absolutely. you know, um, what I've found is I didn't always feel a lot of love, but when I chose to love, like First Corinthians thirteen, then I was rewarded with the feelings. The feelings would come Absolutely. back, and I, you know, we feel closer than ever before. So. Yes, yeah. Because sometimes, like, well, I just don't. We're not in love anymore. Well, that's a choice. Yeah. <laughs> you let me know <laughs> if you want to go after that. But yeah. super cool. Okay, what is some advice that you would give your younger self? <laughs> Uh, keep the weight off because it's a lot easier to get off when you're younger than when you're older. But um, <laughs> I just got that. Sorry. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Um, I mean, I we both had awesome opportunities to be part of a successful family business, and I, you know, other than a few bad decisions one day or the other, I don't know that I would change anything. Um, uh, yeah, probably uh, work harder at being a better spouse and a family man. If I was going to give advice to myself, um, but otherwise, I don't know. I certainly don't regret taking advantage of all the opportunities we had. And you know, when you're young and healthy, you, you take advantage of it and do all the work you can. So, yeah, I think uh, just uh, taking advantage of every you know moment with the with your kids and with your spouse. But but uh, you know, I really. Feel like that investment is 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 paying off now, and I, I probably just tell myself to be patient, you know. And uh, uh, but but it, yeah, we have been extremely blessed. Dan, I gotta ask that because I know I got a lot more stories about you growing up than <laughs> Robert. Like, because my dad always say like you'd tackle everything like super competitive. Like, I remember like running to a tree or something like that in a certain amount of time, Grandpa, and he made it happen. But like. Um, growing up and working and growing this business, being super competitive, how would you have been more strategic 
with your time, I guess, tackling projects, you know, like, because you're probably that guy just jumps in two feet and just, like, starts handling it. But now, like, you know, you, you have the knowledge that you do. If you're talking to your younger self, how would you tell them to go about it now? Yeah, it kind of segues into the last question, which I didn't answer very well, so I'll try to match him <laughs> up here. Um, I mean, I grew up with type A Depression-era leaders. Mm-hmm. Uh, not a lot of encouragement, uh, not a lot of training. Just, uh, I figured it out, you can figure it out, too. <laughs> so naturally, that's how I was, right. which I thought was normal. And it took me a long time to figure out that's not necessarily normal, and it just flat doesn't work today. Um, the whole concept of servant leadership and uh, coaching people and training encouraging people, people, encouraging right. people. Yeah. Um, if I could go back and start learning some of that 20 years earlier, it would have saved a lot of grief. And, um, and you know what? That kid's still in me that learned all that stuff, so it's not like he's gone. <laughs> but Can't get rid of him. but I've sure worked hard at retraining him uh, to really have a deeper appreciation for people and uh, coaching other people to succeed and giving other people opportunities. Mm-hmm. If I could have started that process a lot sooner, um, mm-hmm. we'd probably have some employees today here that we lost along the way. Sure. So. One story I remember you telling is that you came on a job and you felt like they'd formed up this concrete totally wrong, and it was an older superintendent, guy quite a bit older than you, who you're who is now under your authority, and you just uh, took it apart the forms and said, "Do that over," and this is the way you're supposed to do it. And you left the job, but then you kind of snuck back to look to see what they were doing, and they were building it just the way they'd always done oh, it. Oh wow! Yeah. So I think what you told me, the light bulb went off that hey, I got to come up with some other way because that's not getting through <laughs> welcome to leadership yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like i didn't do that right i need to retrain that that's good um okay so tell me how many employees do you have now at kramer and associates so at peak time will be somewhere between 140 150 Whoa. and uh you know during the winter maybe down to 90 wow like okay uh and then what's the future of kramer and associates <laughs> well we're kind of going through a transition again you want to tell about huh. that dan yeah um we are transitioning. Robert actually started the process a couple of years ago wow. and stepped away from a lot of his roles. And then uh, we actually just had a board vote uh, this weekend to step me out at the end of wow. this year from most of my roles. Wow. And um, as shareholders, we'll stay on the board as co-chairs, but we'll have a new president and new vice presidents, uh, people that are currently on the team. Yeah. So not a new team. Sure. Just new labels. Right. And uh, it'll be us. To us, to see if we can step away the, wow. way, the, fir- the way the first generation wow. did, How which you guys I think feel we. About this? Uh, you know, it's scary, but it's yeah. exciting yeah. and it's nervous, but it's the right thing to do. All those things, right? All in one bag. So uh, it sounds I, like you had really good leaders of Dale and George yeah. to be able to like this might be sooner than you want, but it's better for the company in general. Am I right? Yeah, these we have these young guys who uh, are a little older than we were when we you know got transitioned to us, but they're still young. They're in forties, uh, but they're really good, you know. So it just to give them the opportunity is a great thing. Right. Uh, two, we're running out of Kramers, so now it's going to be more like associates oh, and Kramer instead of Kramer associates. Yeah, uh, Aaron's brother is the only uh, Kramer really working at the business, and he's doing well as a superintendent. Uh, but we, so we are transitioning to, uh, our board is made up of some folks that are not Kramers, but really high quality people. Wow. Wow. 
that, does that make you guys feel better? Like, I know, like, those statistically, like, the third generation puts the company, the family company under. <laughs> no. Yeah, I talk to my brother about that all the time. It's on you, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm not worried about the company. I'm really excited about the people we have and the team we have. I'm worried about myself personally, what I'm going to do. But, you know, I'll deal with that. I think here's why I'm more encouraged about you guys is because you said, what's the vision different that you guys took it than the other one? And you were like, there is no different vision. It's been the same vision from the beginning. And it's to serve our clients, serve our employees Mm -hmm. in such a way that we can build with integrity and character. Mm -hmm. That doesn't need to change. Does that make sense? Like that's, and you're going to be part of the board to be able to guard the company from those core values that you have instilled in you from your, your dads. One of the things that they didn't do was they didn't give the company or responsibility to family members who weren't capable of doing it. Mm. And I think that's where so many third generation companies come is that they're just, you know, turning over the company to their heirs because they're the heirs Mm -hmm. instead of let's give it to the best qualified people. Right. And so would you agree? That's Oh, I agree. Yeah, that's cool. That's cool. Wow. This is fun. This is interesting. Okay. I've got two, I got bonus questions. (laughs) All right. uh, So bridges, that's kind of like your guys' thing. There's two bridges I wanted to talk about. I wanted to hear you guys' thoughts on that. The first one is the Minneapolis bridge that went down. So, I mean, you guys are probably up in this, like what what happened exactly on that thing? Because we were in Minneapolis driving over a bridge. Here's why. I, you take that for granted, don't yeah. you? Like yeah. th- the work that you guys do is basically safety. And when that doesn't happen, like things just go awry very quickly. So Yeah, that's very interesting. They, they pinpointed what happened. And it was a big steel gusset plate. So picture a steel plate that's maybe five foot by five foot square, and all these structural members are coming into it, and they're riveted to this plate. Well, they found out that that plate was supposed to be 100 KSI steel, but instead it was 50 KSI steel, which is the way the rest of the bridge was. It wow. slipped through the um, process. and oh, got man. So it should have either been 100 KSI steel, or it should have been an inch thick instead of a half inch thick. Oh. So this plate is half as strong as it should be. But it also shows you kind of the conservative way things are designed. I mean, it lasted all those years. I don't know how long it was, you know, 40 oh, years or something. But they kept adding weight to it. They, um, they added uh, uh, barrier rails to this bridge. They added different things. The traffic's heavier. All this stuff. Um, and then they were actually doing a concrete overlay on it. And this is the kind of work we do. So one of our competitors was working on the bridge. Oh, man. So the straw that broke the camel back, camel's back was that he stacked up all this big pile of rock. Do you remember how many? I want to say like 300 tons. Is that possible? Easily possible, yeah. yeah. Uh, right on top of this, where this plate was. Of course, they didn't know it. Yeah. And in fact, when they were quizzed after the bridge fell down so nobody could tell, they said, oh, no, no, that pile of rock was over the pier. So the mm. pier's holding it up. So it wouldn't have, that wouldn't have been the problem. Well, it just so happened that some person was flying uh, in a plane, took a picture of the bridge that day. Right they, on that they, day. Yeah, an FBI like, you know, made sure this was an authentic picture wow. and the date was right. And sure enough, there's that pile of rock right over where right this plate collapsed. Plate. So it finally uh, took the thing down. Oh, man. Okay, the second one is the Ames Bridge. That goes, I that wasn't you guys' project, right? No, 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 oh, no. I was just thinking like... That poor person. So for those who don't know about Ames, there's this amazing overpass bridge that they had to complete. Like it was almost done. They had to completely get like take it down and then do it again because you guys know more than I do. So but that's what happened. So it was almost done. And then they had to redo it, the whole thing. So tell us about that. 
So this smaller contractor took this large bridge, um, probably a, I don't know, $25 million or $30 million deal, and it was really more than they should have bid off. And if you can picture a bridge, if you're on the interstate and you kind of veer off to the right and then fly over the traffic and over to the other direction, this bridge is, you know, it's on a slope, on a super elevation as it comes around. So when you're building those piers up there in space, it's really hard to do, but um, they didn't do it right. You're supposed to get these anchor bolts in the correct location to hold down the steel beams that are going to sit on that pier. Well, they had a shop in the plans that said, hey, verify with your manufacturer that you're uh, to tell you exactly how tall these little bearings are going to be, which would tell you what where to put these anchor rods or what the elevation should be. And they didn't do that. That information oh, was in their right. in their office trailer and never made it out to the field. Oh, dear. So they built like five huge concrete piers huge. with these anchor bolts in the wrong place. So they had to chip down each one of them like five feet off the top of the pier, chipping down the concrete to uh, be able to get these long anchor rods out and then place them correctly and report it. So it delayed it like a year. And uh, I think if, if it had been a normal, if, if everything else had been normal, they probably would be out of business. For sure. But they, had, they were backed by a company with very deep pockets. And so they were able to weather this. I mean, wow. They stayed like, in is there insurance for that? Like, do you have like, no. you know, insurance? Or? No. no it's just well, you good. might be able to buy it, but nobody does. Right, right. It. Uh, yeah. Mistake and, insurance. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but you know, the uh, the owner, the Iowa DOT, does kind of have an insurance policy, and that's our bond. So when, we, when we're low bidder, we have to give a performance bond to the state. And that bond tells the state that if we go belly up, the insurance company will step in, hire someone else to fix and it or whatever, and finish the job. Wow. So they have kind of a guarantee. But at the end of the day, they made a gentleman's agreement that this company would not no. bid this kind of bridge anymore. No. <laughs> so. That's great. Sorry. I don't know. It's probably so. Well, for our listeners, um, local listeners, if you're driving around Des Moines, Iowa, if you're driving down 235, can you guys tell us what bridges you've built down 235? <laughs> About a third. Okay. <laughs> so some of the two out of the three blue arch, uh, those uh, pedestrian bridges. And then uh, the three, you know, a lot of the bridges over the 235, so like uh, uh, 2nd Avenue, 3rd, is it? 9th and 5th, yeah, we did, 7th. And wow. then nineteenth. Uh, I know to, them all, but it'd take a minute to list them. <laughs> <laughs> the interesting thing we found on nineteenth, you might see on our website, we had a little picture of a tag. Uh, we're tearing down the old Nineteenth Street Bridge. Was that or MLK? Sixth Street. That was Sixth Street. Okay, Sixth Street Bridge. And a laborer came up and said, "Hey, I found this rebar that was stuck in concrete, and it had this tag wrapped around it, and so you could open it up and you could read it perfectly. And it said Kramer Bay's Construction, 1966 wow. or something. Right? It was uh, yeah. So we took a picture at least. Uh, but uh, yeah, we were tearing down a bridge that they had built back in the 60s. Wow, yeah. that's cool. Coming full circle." Well, thank you so much for your time and expertise. And honestly, thanks for making us all safe. I think that's we probably should say that. Um, but yeah, we're super grateful just to be able to unpack some of your wisdom and how you guys are uncommon because you guys are. So uh, you've been listening to Uncommon Wealth Podcast. I've been your host, Philip Ramsey. And Aaron Craven. Until next time, go be uncommon. Thanks for listening. That's all for this episode. Brought to you by Uncommon Wealth Partners. Be sure to visit UncommonWealth.com to learn more about our services. Don't miss an episode as we introduce you to inspiring people who are actively pursuing an uncommon life.